This is Oren Herskowitz, Executive Director of Columbia Technology Ventures at Columbia University in the City of New York. Today we'll be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Hillman. She's a professor of biomedical engineering, not only in the engineering school, but also in the Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute. She'll be telling us about how her lab is using light to probe not only the structure of the brain, but how the brain actually works and makes decisions. How we all use optical imaging in our daily lives all the time, about why the Zuckerman Institute is such a bold step in understanding the human brain, and about what her experience has been like working as a female scientist, both in academia and also in male-dominated startups in the past. Dr. Hellman, thanks for joining us today. Maybe we could just start off you run the lab for functional optical imaging at Columbia. Mm-hmm. Could you explain what that lab does? Maybe just tackle each of the words, functional, optical, and imaging. Okay, well, let's start with imaging. Um, we create images. We create imaging systems, um, so systems that are able to take pictures of things um, and, and record them and allow us to analyze what's going on in those images. Um, Optical means that we create those images using light. Um, you may have, uh, be familiar with X-rays or, or magnetic resonance imaging systems. Um, there's lots of different ways that you can create images. Um, we create those images using light and lasers, which gives us a unique ability to um, use light to probe the kinds of things that um, uh, light interacts with. If you think of things being different colors. We can, we can use that information about different colors. Um, and then functional is probably the, the, the most sort of tricky word. And it's referring to um, being able to look at the, the, the function of things. Um, and, and I guess I didn't mention this, but we, um, we use all of our imaging systems generally to image living things. And so um, if we wanted to say, look at brain function, it would mean that we're not just trying to look at the structure of the brain. We're not just trying to look at where the cells are or, or what the cell's shape is. We want to look at what actually those cells are doing. So if we want to do a functional uh, brain image, we want to actually look at the way that the brain is working. Um, and so that actually means that almost all of the technologies in my lab um, image over time. They create kind of movies um, which allow us to capture, uh, for example, you know, what's going on in the brain of an animal when it makes a particular movement or it receives a particular stimulus. So that puts it all together as the laboratory for functional optical imaging. It means that we are um, using or developing imaging systems and using them uh, to be able to capture information about um, the way that uh, living systems work. Um, and, and we use light in order to do that. And is this something that the average person is going to encounter you know, in a doctor's office or a hospital, or is this primarily for research applications? Well, the funny thing is we all do optical imaging all the time, every single day, because our eyes sense colors. And anytime you walk in onto your child and you say, gosh, you look pale, are you feeling okay? You're doing optical imaging with your eye. You're actually measuring the color of the hemoglobin in your child's blood. And you're able to see whether or not uh, their, their skin has got a lot of blood flow in it, whether they're, whether they're healthy, whether they're flushed, whether they're having trouble breathing, their blood's gonna go a little bit more blue and that's gonna tell you that they're a little bit um, hypoxic. Um, so so it, it's literally all around us. Um, and then there's obvious things like, you know, dermatology is obviously a lot about examining and looking at the, the, the color of a particular lesion and whether or not you've got different, you know, types of melanin or different types of vascularity in there. 
um, when you go to the optometrist, you're uh, using it obviously all over the place, but um, uh, you may have had something called an optical coherence tomography scan, OCT. Um, that's a way of looking into the back of your eye and not just seeing a picture of you know, the, the, just the flat back of your eye, but it's actually an optical imaging technology that allows you to look at the different layers in the back of your eye. And that makes, um, that's very, very important for looking at things like if your retina, uh, the, the part that senses um, the images in your eye is like separating from the rest of your eye, or if you've got things like um, macular degeneration. Um, and then my favorite example is pulse oximetry. So if you ever go into the hospital and they put like that little clothes peg thing onto your finger with a little glowing red light in there, um, that's doing exactly this as well. It's shining light through your finger and it's actually measuring the color of your blood. And as I mentioned earlier on, uh, blood actually changes color when it changes how much oxygen is bound to it. So it goes from a kind of sort of actually brownish color to a bright red color. Um, and so that little thing on your finger, anytime you're in the hospital, they put that on, they're measuring your oxygen levels in your blood, and they're also measuring your heart rate, which they can pick up from the little changes in the amount of blood in your finger that vary as, uh, as your, your heart's beating. So it's, it's all over the place, but, um, but it's, it's in many, many different very varied forms. And that sounds like that's the clinical applications. So that's the way like we as humans who may have medical issues might interact with your technology. Mm -hmm. Are there are there ways this is being used in the research applications as well? Absolutely. Yeah. So so <laughs> I always say this about light, right? Light is amazing because, as I said, it interacts with so many things, uh, you know, all, uh, even just if you watch a, a tomato that's ripening from being green to red, you're actually watching chemical changes in that tomato as its color is changing. Um, so light senses everything around us. And it's amazing. The problem with light is it scatters. Okay, so what that means is that you can think of trying to shine a, a laser pointer through a glass of water versus through a glass of milk, right? If you shine it through a glass of milk, you're going to see a big kind of fuzzy ball of light coming back at you all in different directions. And that's because the light doesn't get to travel in a nice straight line. It actually interacts with the little oil droplets in the, in the milk, and that changes the direction that the light is traveling in. And so that makes it really difficult to use optical imaging for things like a whole body scan. So if you think of all the examples I gave, you're just trying to image, you know, tissues that you can get at, like the back of the eye or the surface of the skin. Now, there are technologies that do shine light all the way through tissue and kind of detect this scattered light. But the technology works the best if you can actually get kind of up close to the things that you want to image. Now, um, that means we're really, really good at imaging things like animals, uh, uh, mice, or uh, we do a lot of different animals in our lab, like uh, little fish, um, little worms, uh, flies, uh, all different types of um, biological organisms that are nice and small, where the scattering of the light is, is much less and where we can um, really ask kind of uh, controlled questions about, um, you know, what's going on when I do this to this particular animal. Um, and then I, I don't want to go on and on. Um, the, 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 key, the key technology that we, we've been able to leverage over the last couple of decades is what's called fluorescent proteins. Um, and actually green fluorescent protein uh, won the Nobel Prize a few years ago. And Marty Chalfie uh, in biology here at Columbia um, was, was one of the recipients of that prize. And um, it, it was a very 
obscure sounding thing that they did. They, they took a gene uh, from a jellyfish, so a little bit of, of the genetic information uh, from a jellyfish out of the ocean. Um, and that particular uh, uh, gene was able to make um, a, a fluorescent protein. So make something that looks like a fluorophore. Now, what's a fluorophore? Um, <clears throat> if ever you remember having those like bright yellow socks, or maybe you have a pair of sunglasses that have like a bright pink uh, arm on them. Um, or if you go to the disco and all of a sudden, like the white print on your t-shirts glowing really brightly, um, that's called fluorescence. And um, it's a, a special kind of reaction that particular substances can have with light that cause them to absorb uh, in one color and emit in a different color. And they found these jellyfish made this special fluorescent substance. And so they took that gene and they put it into other animals, into other cells, and they caused those cells to make this special substance. And um, what that gives us is it's like a little tag that we can put onto basically anything we want to now. Um, and our imaging systems can image that really, really easily. Um, and so uh, that we can now leverage any animal uh, that has had this done to it by adding these little fluorescent proteins. Um, so you could, for example, um, label a cancer cell and put it into an animal. And then if that cancer spread around that animal, every single cancer cell in that animal would glow. Um, and our imaging systems can go in and find those uh, really clearly. That's amazing. Um, yeah, <laughs> and, and I know that you're in that you work. You've got a, a couple of different appointments around Columbia, but one of them is with the Zuckerman Institute, the Mind Brain mm -hmm. Behavior Institute. And so, how is this used in pushing the frontier? Actually, maybe you could start off with: Could you give us an explanation of what the sort of premise behind the Zuckerman Institute is, and and what it's like to work there? And then I'd be interested in hearing an example of how your work is applied to the human brain. Sure. Okay. So that's a lot. Um... <laughs> So the Zuckerman Institute uh, is the, the first building on the new Columbia Manhattanville campus. Um, so, so I think that's really very cool. Um, and uh, I, I, think, I think the premise is that, you know, understanding the brain is so fundamental to, you know, who we are as humans, to uh, tackling some of the worst diseases and, and, and sort of medical conditions that affect society today from, from, you know, violence and aggression and depression to things like Alzheimer's disease. Um, and, and if we want to start to understand the brain, you know, we need, we need everything. We need all of the resources we can possibly get. We need engineering. And in my case, you know, we, we, we need to be able to image it, right? We need to be able to look at where everything is and look at how it works. But we also need things like psychology where we can uh, construct sort of um, uh, models to understand, you know, if I ask someone this question, they always do this, right? So you need to be able to sort of uh, uh, quantify um, and understand things, you know, from that level. And then we have connections to pretty much every other, you know, area of the university. Um, and, and so that was recognized, I think, um, uh, by, by the, the president of our university, that neuroscience really was sort of at the epicenter of many, many different disciplines that were all going on at Columbia. Um, and I would say, actually, you know, the neuroscience department uh, only formed reasonably recently because neuroscience sort of spans across all these different biology clinical, even mathematics, you know, all these different places of the university. 
they were very scattered around, all, all within the medical campus as well as down on the main campus. And so I think it was a, a really clever idea to say, let's put all of neuroscience, uh, or at least basic neuroscience, into this new building and, and really try to make it bigger than the sum of its parts. Um, and for us, you know, proximity to each other is, is really essential because, you know, we do rely on, uh, for example, a lot of different um, uh, mouse models. So, so different types of, as I mentioned before, like genetically modified mice, where, you know, if somebody has a mouse on one campus, but your microscope is on the other campus, it's impossible for you to do this work. So bringing us all together into one building has really been able to form all of these different connections and create um, a kind of a hub that then sort of spans out and, and strengthens neuroscience research, you know, throughout the university. So I think of, you know, I, when I think of your work in a, in a building like that, and it is true, like one of the amazing things about Columbia is that you've got, it's not a school that's, you know, only good at one at, in, in oncology or only good in, in biomedical engineering or only good in economics or only good in the law. It's uh, President Bollinger's use of the term university in full um, in the past where, and, and it, in some ways the Zuckerman Institute seems like the very embodiment of that where all these amazing faculty are crammed together into a building and just you sort of have this image of people sort of colliding in the hallways and working on things together. So Dr. Hellman, what specifically does, does the technology you've invented? I mean, university science is always on the cutting edge, right? That's the definition. It's doing things that are new and novel. So what is, the, what is it that your technology allows us to do with the human brain that couldn't be done before? Well, so um, my technology, the, the one that we've, we've spent the last sort of 10 years uh, uh, developing and, and, and hopefully commercializing, um, we call it swept confocally aligned planar excitation microscopy. And we would be here all day if you if you asked me <laughs> to explain all of those words. But we just call it SCAPE, S-C-A-P-E, SCAPE. Um, and so it's a it's a type of microscope. So you may be familiar with the microscopes you used at school that you know you look down them and you have a little slide with a thinly sliced piece of tissue on there. Um, and of course, you know, you can see cells. Um, but what we want to be able to do is take those kinds of microscopic images in actual living intact uh, animals, right? Um, and it, it could be these tiny fish or tiny flies or tiny worms. Um, but it also could be the mouse brain um, or even things like mouse tumors. Um, uh, and so we, we need a technology that doesn't need us to slice things up really thinly in order to be able to look at them. Um, so our technology uh, uh, allows us to image uh, things at a microscopic scale um, in living intact um, samples, um, actually in three dimensions at very high speeds. And the technologies that we've had in the past um, have been able to do three-dimensional imaging in these kinds of samples, um, but they would image them sort of like one plane at a time. So you'd get sort of a one, one slice of a sort of an image, and then you'd have to move down and take another slice and then move down and eventually form this sort of cube um, of, of an image. And that would take a really long time. And so most of biology that, that needs to use microscopes to, to look at things. Um, and again, I mentioned earlier on about these fluorescent proteins. So now we have these samples that have these amazing, even all different colors of, of cells. Um, and, and the most prominent technology that I, I didn't mention is that um, people realized how to make those probes sensitive to things uh, like calcium. And so what you can actually do now is take a gene, that gene from that jellyfish, put that into a neuron 
It makes the neuron glow green when you shine blue light on it, that's fluorescence. But then when the neuron fires, when it's actually thinking, there's an increase in calcium inside the cell and that causes this glowing green light to become brighter. And so what it actually lets us do is take an image of this neuron and the neuron will literally flash. And that will tell us that that neuron is actually active. And that's the function that I mentioned earlier. And so people have been using standard microscopes to try to image this flashing calcium in these neurons, but they've really only been able to image them in just a single plane, like a flat piece of paper, which doesn't give you many neurons to see. And it doesn't let you appreciate the fact that the whole tissue isn't three-dimensional. So our technology, through this very, very weird way of forming an image that we really sort of stumbled upon over many, many years, um, allows us to create a three-dimensional image at really high speeds, you know, orders of magnitude faster than what people have been able to do in the past. Um, we've been added two added advantages, which is that firstly, um, when we shine the light onto the tissue, sometimes you can cause damage if you use too much light, um, or you can bleach it literally like like you know, your 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 t-shirt gets bleached when it's out in the sunshine. Um, our technology uses much less light than the standard methods, and so allows it to actually not damage the tissue when you're imaging it, which is really really important if you want to image it for a long time and see it moving around or see these neurons flashing. Um, and the other thing is that it's really quite simple. Um, a lot of the technologies that were trying to make things faster for 3D imaging were adding more and more complex pieces to the systems and more and more expensive components. And the way that we discovered to create this image is ridiculously simple and requires just one little mirror that moves around. Um, and so this sort of all together, this package is this, this has these new capabilities for being able to do you know, really, really fast 3D gentle imaging in a in a system that's like pretty compact and and pretty inexpensive, and so I, I, I this is that just you know realizing that this actually worked you know gave me this this huge drive to say wow I have to show people I have I have to get this out there I have to I have to see what this can do, um, and so how does it impact the human brain? Um, well, it's allowing us to understand a lot of different aspects of um, how the brain works in general. And if you have a small fish where you can image literally every single neuron in the whole brain all at once with our system, you can really start to understand you know, amazing things like, like if you flash a light in this fish's eyes and then it decides to swim, what does that look like in the brain versus when it decides not to swim? Uh, we just don't even know that. And if we can literally measure every single cell in the brain and how it's firing during that period of time, that's exactly the kind of data we need to decode just simple things about how does the brain even work. We wouldn't be able to apply this technology to imaging the whole human brain or really if, even to imaging um, activity in the whole human brain, but by being able to untangle these sort of mechanisms for how things work, um, we're able to, to have an impact on understanding, you know, how the brain works and how the brain is affected by diseases. Uh, additionally, um, another thing we did discover is that since our microscope is just so fast, as much as we were wanting to use it to measure function, we actually now have a big project that we hope uh, will be funded soon to um, use this technology to actually image every cell in the human brain. Um, and that can be done uh, through a, a a bit of a complicated technology where we have to take a human brain, um, cut it into slabs five millimeters thick, 
and actually clear them, so make them transparent, uh, get get rid of that milky uh, 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 scattering, um, which is, which is a chemical process that you can do to the tissue that that is being worked on by my colleague Xu Hao Wu at um, Mount Sinai, and then um, use my system to basically just scan uh, these brain uh, slices. And um, there's literally hundreds of billions of neurons in a human brain, but we have never looked at all of them uh, in one brain. And our goal is to develop this technology platform to the point where we can image one whole human brain in about a week. And if we can do that, then we can really get into being able to image hundreds of human brains. And we think that that will be a way to um, really start to disentangle, you know, how is one brain different from another? And, and you know, how do uh, any, any, how does any aspect of how the human brain is put together change or vary in people that have one disease versus another or a different age or, or come from, you know, different uh, genetic backgrounds and, and so on. So we have ended up finding our way to human brain eventually. Um, and I think this underscores sort of how we work in the lab. We never meant to develop this technology for, for the, that kind of imaging. But once we realized that, you know, that was something that people wanted to do, we realized that, you know, our technology was was really well suited to it. And so that's another direction now that we're pursuing in the lab. You know, it's interesting because you mentioned earlier uh, the importance of, of getting these inventions out of the lab. You're one of our more prolific inventors at Columbia Technology Ventures. I mean, you've, you've, you've come up with a lot of inventions. You're very actively engaged with our office, and we really appreciate that. Um, there are faculty at Columbia who sort of, for whom that process of transferring their technology out of their lab, whether it's through a patent or whether it's through just collaborating with other researchers, doesn't, you know, is not as central to what they do. And it seems like this is something you take very seriously. Um, why, why is that process of, of transferring your technology important to you? Okay, so this, there's a story here, um, if you can bear a story. Please. Um, Okay, so I did my PhD in, in London, uh, and we were working on a technology for um, imaging the brains of premature infants. This was something that was very kind of dear to my heart, and we were using exactly those technologies I talked about at the beginning, being able to shine uh, red light through tissue um, and look at oxygenation levels in the brain. So whether a baby was was having good blood flow in their brain and whether it was well oxygenated. Um, and that's really important for premature infants and infants that may have had um, birth asphyxia where they get like, you know, uh, problems um, with, with getting oxygen to their brain and can lead to lifelong cerebral palsy. So that's what I came into saying I can use my physics training, my engineering training to try to create, you know, this imaging system. And after working on that during my PhD, I, at the end, I sort of said, wait a minute, you know, how is this going to actually get out there into hospitals and be used by people? And, and at least, and this is no, no, uh, uh, not intended as a slight to my, to my institution, but there wasn't really a plan for that, you know, in our in our department. And and I, I found myself wondering whether it was literally the definition of an academic exercise. We were developing. You, and where were you at that time, Elizabeth? Oh, well, I do not know what I should say. Um, I was at <laughs> University College London, which is the okay. most amazing institution in all of England. And I was blessed to have some incredible advisors there who who pushed me all along my way. So, so it, it's very, very dear to my heart. But at that time, I was not. I felt that what we were doing there was not connected to the eventual implementation of this. So I actually got sort of um, headhunted by by a couple of companies in in America 
um, one to go over and sort of work on commercializing that, that technology um, as part of uh, a company, as well as a, another company in Boston um, that eventually I went to that was, was recruiting for doing non-invasive glucose monitoring in diabetics. So that means, um, you know, all diabetics need to measure their sugar levels every day. And um, one of the biggest problems, and this was 20 years ago, is, is that if you have to prick your finger every day, you, you don't really want to, uh, or, or multiple times a day, you, there's pain associated with that. It limits the amount of testing people do. So if we could make a system that could just test you, just like you could hold your phone up to your hand and it would tell you your glucose level, then people would be able to test all the time. And that would make monitoring and, 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 and control of the disease uh, much, much better. So that was our dream was to have some sort of, you know, device that could measure your glucose levels you know, without needing to prick your finger. Um, and so I, 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 I thought, well, I'll go work for a company um, because that's where it's at. You know, we will develop a product and, and that product will get into people's hands and, um, and I'll have an impact. Um, now, then I discovered that I moved to Boston. This was 2001, 2002, actually right after 9-11. Uh, where nobody was investing in companies and um, everything was pretty dire mm -hmm. with this with this company. Um, I did meet my wonderful husband there, but um, uh, I learned a lot. I learned so much about clinical trials, about the FDA, about commercialization, about disposables, about investors, about colleagues, project management, you name it. You know, I, I learned animal experiments, all this stuff very, very quickly there. And I also learned that I did not like that environment. Hmm. Um, I needed I needed the connection to real people, to students, to teaching, to sharing my work openly, to being able to grow and decide tomorrow I want to learn about something else and I want to add that to what I do, you know. And so um, I went back to do a postdoc at Math General Hospital, Harvard Medical School, with this very fresh mindset that like, if I was gonna do this, if I was gonna do academia, I was gonna do stuff that mattered. And I was gonna make sure that if I did develop anything, it would be useful. And if it was useful, I would get it out there. And my mentor there, David Boas, had also done a really good job of this. I was really kind of inspired by the way that he had succeeded in, in having his academic lab, but also making sure that technologies actually did get translated out and he had a startup. Um, and, and having worked in the company, you know, I knew all these people. And since the company folded, you would be surprised to hear, they all scattered all throughout the biomedical uh, industries throughout the country, right? So now I had 50 people or so that I also knew uh, who worked in this field, you know, in industry. And so, um, so yeah, I actually made my first invention as a postdoc uh, or junior faculty at MGH. And, um, you know, did an experiment, got this sort of tingle that, wow, this actually might be useful. Um, and uh, went off by myself to one of these former colleagues at his new company, did an NDA, disclosed the invention to him and they licensed it. And, um, uh, you know, I just sort of followed that track ever since. So it, it's about feeling like we're, when, you know, we're doing the right thing. We're doing the right thing with our time. We're doing the right thing with money that people give us to be sure that we have the impact. Um, and if we if we discover something that's worthy of the effort, we should put the effort in. Um, and, and I was fortunate to have that sort of baptism of fire where I learned all about, you know, all the sort of 
counterintuitive things in a way sometimes, you know, and all the issues about patents and all the things about freedom to operate and stuff that, that were so key to kind of navigating the space and deciding, you know, what, what deserved the effort and the energy and, and what didn't. Um, uh, maybe how is, how are some of the ways that, like, what are some of the problems that, that have, that other faculty have brought to the table that you've engaged with where your, where your optical imaging has sort of been useful? Yeah. So I think, I think this is, this is actually, this is very loaded. Um, but, but yeah, as a, as an engineer, you know, I trained in physics and, and engineering and I, and I teach, you know, biomedical design. I, I see myself as a problem solver in some ways. Um, now I, I love to create these new technologies. And sometimes it's true that we're sitting there and we go, wow, you know, we could do, we could do this. You know, I wonder if we, you know, I wonder if this would work. Right. But it's, it's, it's more fun for us to, you know, say be sitting in a, a neuroscience talk and have somebody say, you know, if only we could measure, you know, these cells at this part in the brain and we just can't, we don't have any way to do that. And, and if we could only do that, we would really be able to understand this system in a completely different way, right? And when someone like me hears that and, and, and it happens to match up with something that we already maybe know that we can do, you know, that's brilliant, right? Because then I, I really can, I can know that I'm going to develop something that's gonna really address that problem. Um, and sometimes, you know, it needs to be a discussion because then you go to them and you say, well, you said you needed this. What if I could do this instead? And then they go, oh, that would be even better. You know, so so it's it's those kinds of interactions that I think are so important. And, and what it means as well is then those technologies get into the hands of, you know, our researchers, you know, first. And, and we're able to kind of push the science forward um, but that said, of course, it's, it's, it's also super important for us to share those technologies. And that's become a, a huge part of my lab, um, massively enabled by Zuckerman because we've had a lot more space here and we've been able to welcome people in from all over the world. Uh, not in the last year, of course, but yeah. welcome people in to, to use our systems, to try our systems, as well as um, spending a lot of time helping people uh, all over the world build our systems um, so that they can use them for their research. But, you know, it, it, you can't really do these things in isolation of each other. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that's really, really crucial um, for, for us to sort of be here um, together, even when yeah. we're not physically here together, which, as I said, has been something of an issue in the last little bit. Uh, it's really interesting because I think it ties back to what you said earlier about in some ways, um, you know, you got interested in the whole field because you were a physicist and you were thinking what kind of problems could physics solve? And then you sort of found your way to imaging and, you know, initially around the premature babies that, that, that you were working with. Right. And then the sort of, as the, as the, you know, as the tool evolves, the kinds of problems you can tackle evolve with it, which evolves new tools, which evolves exactly. new problems. Exactly. So it's interesting to see, you know, as a non-scientist myself, it's interesting to see the way science sort of keeps growing and changing. Right. And and I'll also say that I think the engineer in me is the problem solver. The physicist just wants to know how stuff works. That's what <laughs> physics is. It's I want I want to know how this system works. And that's that's my fascination with the brain is 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 I just need to know how it works, you know, and, and that's what drives us is that curiosity. You you mentioned you 
were at the company in Boston and, in, in, and it, it was a tough environment and didn't raise the money and the company failed. And so you came back to academia. And, not, and so you came back to academia. There were many reasons you came back. But if that company had been wildly successful um, and it raised all the funding it needed and sold or went public, do you think you would have stayed in industry? Or do you, like how much, an influ- how much of an influential role did that have in the rest of your professional life? That's an interesting question. Um, and, and I don't think I would be sitting on a beach sipping pina coladas right now, if that's your question, because that's <laughs> not know, my style. I, I, I wish it I were. I've never seen you stop moving or thinking once in my 15 years <laughs> of working together, so no. <laughs> it's like when my mom took early retirement and was more busy the week after than the week before, you know. Um, uh, yeah, I would say, well, I've never been a big, I've, I, I've, always, I've always done life one decision at a time but maybe two, but, you know, I'm pretty good at projecting things forward, but I've never been absolutely set on a specific thing that I wanted. And so um, I I wouldn't have, I, I didn't really know what an academic career was. I mean, it was a horrible shock when I asked someone what tenure track meant and they told me <laughs> you could get fired after seven years or something. And I was like, what? That's awful. <laughs> um, so I, 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 I was a pretty naive about, any of those careers. Um, but, but, you know, in, in the moment at the company, for me, um, it was a tough time. And, um, and, I, and I went there because I didn't know what else to do. You know, I didn't have a big plan in England. I didn't know where I wanted to go in England. I, I didn't know what I wanted to work on. I, I had no model for where I should go. So it just sounded cool to go to Boston for a year or two and, you know, try something different and see what happened. But I think I didn't, the thing that keeps coming to mind was, you know, there was a lot of men. There was a lot of pretty assertive, aggressive men. Everybody was in a bit of a panicked environment, obviously, because we were struggling with funding. But, you know, I had people look at me and go, like, you know, what are you, 15? Like, you have a PhD? You can't have a proper PhD. You you don't look old enough to have a proper PhD, you know? And... And I ha- and, and it was really, really hard. I, it was a baptism of fire. I mean, I, 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 w- I went to an all-girls school uh, up through high school in England. And as much as that was weird in itself, it meant that I had never experienced really gender bias at all. I did physics. I did math. I did technology. And the teachers were, were very sweet with me and very encouraging. And I... I I got to university, I had a few glitches the first few weeks, but then I was the top student in my program and, and everybody just got used to me. And I, and then I did my PhD and, and, and everybody was nice and respectful and I was just as much, you know, one of the gang as everybody else. But when I went to this company, I was a girl and I was a young looking mm. girl and I didn't even know myself how to handle that, how to deal with, deal with the, the, the the um deal with what they were saying to me you know and 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 it's easy in those situations to just get angry or to get frustrated or to get upset and and that makes it worse and so um i i think one thing about academia is is it's not great in this regard but i think it does it looks more at the person than you know uh what the person looks like uh or you know you have your record you have your cv and that speaks for um, what you're capable of. Um, and in industry, 
for me, it was a lot more doggy dog. You know, um, I just shouted louder than you and I don't have a PhD, but they're going to do my project instead of yours because, you know, <laughs> and, and so um, that that stuff was that's the thing that sticks in my mind as, as the experience. And I wanted to add that, you know, when I was shopping my technology around to get uh, licensing, uh, uh, I had that same situation many times, you know, I'd say, I have a new technology and they'd look me up and down and sort of say, well, who do you work for? You know, who did you mm. train with? Like, whose idea is this, you know? And, um, and I'm not, I, I think I'm a little better at it now, but probably not, as good as I should be, you know, not to, not to want to uh, scream and shout when that sort of stuff happens um, or, 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 you know, cower away, either one. Um, it, it is unfortunate. Dr. Hillman, thanks so much for joining us today. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.